Hello and welcome to Long Ball Premier League Preview Show. I'm Declan DeBarp. And I'm Kosti Kapoor. Chelsea are up for sale. Leeds march on. And the Canadian men's national team is going to the World Cup. There's a lot to talk about on this show, so let's just jump into it. The Canadian men's national team is going to the World Cup. It's something that I never thought that I'd be able to say, and I have to say that I'm lucky enough to have been in the building when they did so. It was an incredible weekend. I went home and got to witness something I never thought I would. Canada, back in the World Cup since 1986 at Mexico, they only needed three points in this final window of the octagon. They came in basically undefeated and they did it and they did it. And I I'm still at a loss for words. You know, it means so much um, for soccer in this country. This is a country that's on the come up just to think in 2016. Soccer in Canada was ranked 144th. Currently, we're 33rd in the world. We just missed out on a pot three after a one to nothing loss against Panama last night. It was a, it was a tough game. And to think that Canada's done this largely without the services of Alfonso Davies, who missed seven of the 14 qualifying games through an ankle injury. And most recently myocarditis after his battle with COVID-19, it really speaks to the quality that's on this team. You have Jonathan David, one of the best strikers in all of Europe, Tejan Buchanan, an, an up and coming product. And, Obviously, we can't forget sweatpants himself, Milan Borjan at Trezda. As someone who's been immersed in this world since 2014, I have to say the Canadian men's national team is my team. Uh, I love West Ham, but the thought of seeing Canada at a World Cup has always been something that I've dreamed about. It's something that I've wanted so desperately. And to think that it's come true is it's just out of this world. And especially in a week where Italy didn't make the World Cup, it's, uh, it's been very nice. But uh, yeah, Costi, I mean... I'm all on the inside of this, but what do you think that this means to, to Canada as a country? I can speak to this very personally because I've also been in this sport or so drenched in this sport since 2013, 14. I've followed... really seen it develop eh? in, in Canada where it was this yeah. thing that wasn't taken seriously. And now, you know, you have dedicated bars to it, but you also have just this public consciousness of it as well. Yeah. And uh, for a country that's largely dominated by North American sports, which makes sense, and is largely hockey dominated, I think even I talk to my roommates, which are like my first primary understanding of how they perceive the game, uh, they primarily because both of them are, have been Canadian nationals. And I came in as an immigrant in 2014, so I have a very different view of it. Uh, they grew up loving hockey and, you know, doing that stereotypical Canadian thing where soccer isn't part of their mind. Even they um, read in the news, they didn't really follow the qualifiers, read in the news that we had qualified and, you know, conversations like, oh, hey, maybe uh, we should follow this team. Maybe I will watch more of the World Cup this time. Maybe I will understand there's more players than Alfonso Davies on the team. And that is important to this sport because it'll, in this country, because it'll bring in a lot more money, which obviously then leads to better development and more global superstars than Alfonso Davies. And uh, that's important. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And my little cousins were actually at the game. They're, they're nine and six years old. And to think that they get to grow up with this Canadian men's national team and see this at a very high level is, is insane. And, you know, I saw them after the game and they were like, that was great. They did it. I can't believe it. And instilling that belief in the next generation is something is something that is really, really important and building the game in this country. And 
you know, I don't know the chances that, that Canada have at the World's Cup, but just to be there in Qatar is, is, is insane. It's something that I think that many of us never thought we'd see. And especially when you think back to qualification for the 2014 World Cup, where basically all Canada needed was a win against Honduras and they go and they lose seven, nothing to see the jump in quality has been, has been insane. And you have people like Stefan Eustachio, who is Portuguese. He grew up in Portugal. He was born just outside of Toronto. And he chose Canada. He was like, I'm going to play for Canada. And he's the heart of that midfield. He's one of the most underrated players on the team. Incredible. You have a guy like Alistair Johnson, who is just this workhorse and this bright light. He kind of looks like a lizard, but he is just this bright light on this team. It's, it, it's a team I've fallen in love with and, um, I'm so and I think excited. The, the intangible benefits of being in the World Cup are way more important to Canada as a uh, to be recognized in the global sphere of the sport more than the tangible benefits of say money or recognition for being good at that sport. We might get knocked out in the in the group stages. We don't know. Uh, there's good chance of that. But the point is that we were there. We were represented, and the country. The way politics even will work is you'll see politicians come out in support of that so much more than they ever have before. Trudeau has always talked about hockey and uh, how he's a big fan of the Montreal Canadiens. You know, he'll be talking about Canada more. You never know what kind of funding that brings into the sport and in different leagues. Ontario soccer might get more funding next year. You know, the, these organizations that are politically maneuvered have a leverage now because we're represented in the biggest sport, uh, nationwide sport for that game. Yeah, and if John Herdman hasn't uh, already booked himself a ticket to the Canadian Sports Hall of Fame, I think that he fully deserves it, you know, a bronze with the women's national team and largely with the structure that uh, he set up but passed it on to the most recent boss. I, I can't remember her name, but gold medal in the Olympics for Canada and soccer, a World Cup berth in the same year. It's, it's just incredible the pace at which the sport in this country is growing and something that uh, I'm very excited to see to continue to develop. And, and it helps people like us that are podcasting out of this country because we face big hurdles to make it big in the podcast world. Not that that's our intention of this podcast. We just like talking about the sport, but um, it gives us a good platform because we can represent now, right? Because people who have been geographically closer, uh, content creators, writers, podcasters that have been geographically closer to different places like England, Germany, Spain, have an upper hand on content creators, which uh, in turn sort of, it discourages us a little bit, right? Because uh, we don't feel like we can make it the same way, say the Redmen TV uh, can make it because they have access to Anfield. And whenever there's a Legends game, they just walk on through and, you know, our sideline reporters, which is huge. Um, but this happening, you know, we, we don't know what's going to happen in the next 10 years with the sport in the country, but if it continues to grow like this, you'll see a lot more improvements and which will bring a culture uh, whereabouts I think kids will be more and more excited to join the sport. I coach uh, in the summer at this club called Moordale in uh, Richmond Hill. Sorry, not in Richmond Hill, in Toronto. It, it, I said Richmond Hill because it's a rich area and it, um, <laughs> I am completely blanking the name, but uh, you see kids... Uh, talking about hey you think you think i can make it big in this sport and these are like eight-year-old kids and it's it's good to hear they talk about alfonso davies which is huge because i don't think in the last uh eight years when i when i was here in 2014 i hear her i didn't hear anyone in uni talk about canadian soccer stars which is big 
Yeah. And I mean, it's not just Alfonso Davies, it's Jonathan David as well, who set to make a big money move and one of the best strikers in the entire world at this moment. And you think about it, these players are young. Like Alfonso Davies is under 23. Jonathan David is under 23. Alistair Johnson is under 23. Tejon Buchanan is under 23. This is just the start for this team. And that is what is so exciting. And no longer will you have, I think, players like Owen Hargreaves choose to represent England, even though he was born and raised in Calgary, Alberta. He went through the foothill system. Florian Tamori, another player who can't break the England squad, but was born in Calgary, Alberta. And it's, it's incredible to see, and it takes buy-in from a couple of players. And if any of you haven't seen it, I really, I really encourage you to go search it out. But exactly what it meant to Alfonso Davies to see his, his team, his country make the World Cup. He was in tears on his Instagram live. And it's, it's just something that I, I can't get excited enough about. I, I don't think I'm quite ready for it. Also, it helps that I had a, a big bet come in and I'm going to go get myself a new tattoo based <laughs> on the Canadian men's national team shortly. But let's move on. We've, uh, we've diatribed about Canada long enough, but uh, in my heart, it, it never is long enough. Uh, but let's move on to the Premier League, the focus of this show. And we start with another team in white, Leeds. Jesse March's appointment has seemed inspired by the Leeds, by Leeds. Two wins in three games. Jesse March is on a roll, including a 3-2 thriller against Wolves. It helps that the red card against Raul Jimenez completely changed the game. Leeds scored three goals after the, uh, after the red card, after the 60-minute mark, and Leeds are rolling. They've created some space between themselves and the drop zone, currently seven points clear of Watford, four points clear of Everton. I think that they might have done enough to save themselves this season, something that I always thought they had. But the injury woes continue for Leeds. Patrick Bamford has only played 560 minutes of a possible 2,700 minutes in the Premier League. He suffered another injury, this one with plantar fasciitis in his foot. He'll be out at least six weeks And it's just devastating to think that this player has missed so much time for Leeds. He's really a player that could have turned their season around, eh, Costi? So for me, Patrick Bamford's pressing is definitely underrated. He seems like uh, a guy who runs like Joel Matip sometimes, where it's awkward and it's tridy, but you can sense that he sort of starts that press from the front and they really missed having that central presence. He has everything you need in a striker with a beauty left foot. And I think they've missed that option because Rafinha can create a lot of good chances and score those odd beautiful goals from outside the box but he's not a regular Arno striker and same you can see with Dan James he he just he's not one of those finishers and uh, we hope that he would be like Raheem Sterling coming into City where Sterling wasn't considered as a good finisher but he was transformed by Pep Guardiola into a finisher that he is today. But that just hasn't happened for Dan James or Rafinha. Uh, and it's even harder coming from the wing. It's not easy. And that sort of amplifies what Mo Salah, Sadio Mane, uh, Riyad Mahrez, all these people do uh, week in, week out. So they've definitely missed Patrick Bamford. I'm just looking at the matches that Leeds have left in and their table stats. They have uh, 29 points, but they are they have also have uh, three games 
more uh, compared to two teams, which is quite a bit. So they need to be on this roll and they have eight games left. Four of them are very, very hard game in, games in Chelsea, Crystal Palace, City and Arsenal. But the other four are definitely winnable against Brighton, uh, Brentford, Watford and Southampton. So honestly, I think uh, Ted Lasso, sorry, Jesse Marsh, sorry, Ted Lasso needs to just uh, focus on the games, the upcoming two games, because those games really set the tide for the rest of the season for them. It's Southampton, it's Watford. Go ahead and beat both of these teams that aren't the best and Watford, you're in a relegation anyway and if you do the if you beat these two teams i think they have enough to carry them to next season but if they lose to either one of those teams to be honest i see it being really hard because i personally don't see chelsea crystal palace city or arsenal dropping points against these i think that you make a good point that this game this weekend is is a must win i mean you look at southampton's most recent form they come in losers of their last three they've only won eight games one more than leeds and in that time, it's not like they've been playing fantastic competition. They lost to Watford, they lost to Newcastle, and they lost to Aston Villa. Those are not teams that you should be dropping points to if you're anywhere if if you have any serious contentions of finishing in the upper upper echelons of the table. And you know, this is one that Leeds can win because I think that they have more quality than all of the teams around them, and that yeah. includes Everton. And they have this revitalized air about them. They play with a real confidence and they've shown that under Bielsa, but now again under March, they they seem like a new team. And some more good news for Leeds is that Liam Cooper and Calvin Phillips are possibly eligible for selection. Jesse March has made has made it known that they will not be starting the game against Southampton, but those two players coming back and possibly being on the bench should be enough to push them forward. And you know, you've mentioned Dan James and Rafinha. Those are those are winger options, but you'd like the likes of uh Rodrigo to give Leeds this real emphasis going forward. And I think that they've been in tough this season, but the seven points clear of Watford seem to be good for me. I, I really do believe that if they beat Watford they're they're going to stay up by the skin of their teeth, but they're going to stay up. But Marsh's men have played really well against some high pressing styles um, since, since he's come in. And that includes wolves who, you know, like to sit a little bit further back, but still press you very hard. And I think that this game might be a turning point here. It's the one of the tougher games that they've played of late, but Southampton, a team that's beatable. And if you get on a three game roll, there's not a lot that can really stop this Leeds team, especially because we've seen that they're a big confidence team. Leeds have not won three games in a row all season. The closest they came was most recently at the beginning of January where they beat Burnley and then they lost to West Ham in the FA Cup. So I think that Leeds have struggled by tying far too many games this season, but they have the quality they need going forward. Yeah, like the only the only thing under Bielsa you saw was Bielsa didn't have a plan B. He never liked a plan B. That wasn't something that he did. But when you lose somebody like Calvin Phillips and Liam Cooper in the middle, you just have to adjust. And Bielsa never did that. And that's on him as a manager. I know he's considered as one of the best managers ever, or at least one of the most knowledgeable managers ever. And, and everybody's praised him for that. But uh, that, you could see why Bielsa doesn't last and is not won Champions Leagues and hasn't won uh, Premier Leagues because you know you have to have a plan B. You have. 
have, you know, you've lost three of your main uh, players in this season and you haven't decided to sort of block off the opposition. You want to play that high intensity and get scored on um, free flow. And that's, that's the problem. I think Jesse Marsh, uh, one of the things that he did really well when he came in was, I can't remember which exact game, but uh, they lost that game and Jesse Marsh came on the field, called everybody out and was explaining what they did wrong. I think it's a very political, tactical move to get the fans knowing that I'm trying to change stuff. I am putting in effort. I think that was good uh, because that is reminiscent of what Klopp did with Liverpool when we drew uh, to uh, West Ham, I think it was. And we you know, saluted the cop and all that sort of thing. And we were made fun of at that time. And people are sort of saying the same thing for Jesse Marsh because... The players didn't seem that interested, but obviously they had to. Uh, they had to listen to their manager. I think, and I think it's also important to keep in mind where Jesse Marsh is from. I think that he's going to draw natural criticisms for being a for being a North American. I think that that's just an undisputed fact that we have to to keep in mind. But you mentioned the thing about Bielsa. I think that that's why people love him so much. That he's this ideologue. That he doesn't have a plan B. That. This is the way he wants to play. This is the way he's going to play. And it doesn't matter if it's not working. This is how he thinks football should be played. So this is the way that football will be played. And that is fair. You know, there's so much to be said about um, the rights and wrongs of it. But you just got to love Bielsa for, for yeah. his idealistic streak. That is fair. Yeah, he's very idealistic. And um, that's a good word because idealism usually doesn't lead to that much success. But, you know, people have a spot, soft spot for you. Um, it changes the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Slowly it should change the world, right? It's my only, my only thing with Bielsa, I guess it's like a nitpicky thing was he never bothered to learn English, which is kind of annoying. You decided to come to this country, like not this country, but England, right? Uh, I think I think it was a little disrespectful to England fans when or Leeds fans when he decided to not put in like the little bit. I don't know. I, I'm just uh, that that part really it just stuck with me because I thought you know like people are giving you so much praise, so much love, and obviously it's just worth it because you have so many English players and Englishes. Uh, whether you want to consider it, unfortunately or not, it is a global language. So it, if you're, you know, if you're going to come to a country where that's the primary language, I think that's a little bit of respect that um, from my side, at least it's a very random comment to make, but that's what I always thought. I don't think you're wrong, but uh, I don't know if I fully agree. It's not football related. We don't have to talk about <laughs> it. <laughs> but let's move on to Chelsea and in a very North American heavy episode, we've talked about Jesse March. We've talked about Canada. Now let's talk about the four bids to try and buy Chelsea, all by Americans. The Rain Group has shortlisted four bids. And, you know, I think we'll have Ollie Car Carpenter on in a couple of weeks to fully dissect all of this. Uh, us as outsiders, I don't think, can provide too much information. And we will really only focus on the one bid by the Ricketts family, but just a brief overview of the four bids. Those coming from Todd Bowley, David Blitzer, the Ricketts family, and Stephen Pagluccia. Just some brief background on all of them. Ted Bowley is the CEO of investment company Eldridge Industries, as well as the founder of DraftKings. He owns 20% in the LA Dodgers. David Blitzer, another man who comes from sports investment. He's a part owner of the New Jersey Devils, Philadelphia 76ers, Crystal Palace, which I think if his bid goes through will be something that will be interesting to talk about, about um, exactly how that funding will affect Crystal Palace. But uh, that is a discussion for another day. Augsburg, Adoden Hog, and Real Salt Lake. 
Stephen Pagluccia is the part owner of the Boston Celtics and Serie A squad Atalanta, uh, 55% ownership in Atalanta, another league that is heavily dominated by American and Canadian ownership groups. And lastly, the bid that we'll focus most on is the bid by the Ricketts family, that being Tom Ricketts, the face of the bid, as well as his uh, brother, Todd, and his sister, Laura. The Ricketts own the Chicago Cubs as well and have been involved in the team since a very early time. In 2009, they purchased the club, and the scrutiny has come thanks to Father Joe. And in, in 2019, there was a raft of emails that were published that included some unsavory, racist, homophobic, choose-your-word um, language that came out um, from Joe's personal emails between his business colleagues and the like. Between 2009 and 2014, he said things like, Islam is a cult, not a religion. Muslims are naturally my, our, enemy. We cannot even let Islam become a large part of our society, as well as sharing birther conspiracies about then-President Barack Obama. And those who don't know um, a lot about birther conspiracy, the birther conspiracy is that uh, it's a question of, if Barack Obama was born in the U.S., if he's a legitimate president and kind of just racist, unsavory, xenophobic, the like. And this has caused Chelsea fans to rally around the hashtag say no to Ricketts. And I think that it is heartening to see that someone who would come in with a lot of money and who has seen success is being turned away by the club for who they are. And before I let you jump in here, Costi, I think that um, I should read out the statement that the Ricketts family put out and this coming from Tom Ricketts. Let me be clear. The language and views expressed in those emails have no place in our society, in our society, quote unquote. He continued to say these emails do not reflect the culture we've worked so hard to build at the Chicago Cubs since 2009. Now, really tough stuff to to read, really disgusting and deplorable things. Um, to see, and I think it's good to see Chelsea fans turning their back on this bid and vehemently saying, no, thank you. This is not someone we want to represent our club. Um, I'll, let, I'll just let you take the floor, Costi, if you have anything you want to add to this. But uh, I think that we have to be careful with what we say here, but these emails are in the public domain, and I think that denouncement is the only thing that we can approach them with. Yeah, there's no way uh, anyone should say anything in support of the languages that have been used and been made public in those emails. Um, honestly, it is sad to see that in our society, we have people like this that can be such uh, uh, in power and a part of our society uh, with such influence. The Chicago Cubs are not a small team. They are one of the oldest teams uh, to be around. And they had that big win in 2016, which was celebrated uh, by the Chicago fans like crazy, even though they knew all of this that was uh, out. Right? These emails didn't come out until 2019. So, uh, Yeah, by, by that, I mean, uh, I more just mean that even still they own the club and, mm -hmm. and that's still uh, part of our society. And uh, the most recent thing that I can parallel this with is probably the Saudi investment fund, the PIF that took over Newcastle. And in uh, last summer, I believe when, when they were uh, 
they were ready to take over Newcastle. There was this whole uh, talk about how Saudi's uh, investment fund and the way they uh, their human rights are structured is not right. And there's been a whole uh, controversy over Qatar World Cup. But there was that uh, talk and that enragement for a bit. And then lo and behold, they, they own Newcastle now. And they, you know, they are... Uh, looking to be a strong team in the next five years, to be honest, because they have uh, their net worth is $320 billion. So you cannot stop that. I um, think that I think that it's a little bit different comparing um, the comments of the Ricketts fam of, of Joe Rickett Ricketts to uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. I mean, Tom Ricketts never cut up and murdered someone. Uh, I, I think that those are on different levels, but I, I, I understand the point that you're making in that Football attracts and sports attract all of these unsavory characters. And I think that in years past and maybe even months past, this wouldn't have been blinked at. But I think we are in this profound moment of change where we expect the owners of clubs to represent the values of our communities, right? Because we don't want another situation with Roman Abramovich. Uh, Say what you will about the way that some Chelsea fans have continued to sing his name, have continued to endorse him. And I think it's important to mention that in photos leaked of some of the Ukrainian press uh, peace talks, you can see Roman Abramovich in the background of those photos for anyone who doubted his connections um, to the Kremlin. That we need to start demanding more as fans. And I don't know if American ownership is the way to go, given everything we've seen with the Super League being pioneered by some of the Spanish clubs and then being backed heavily by the American owners in the Premier League. And then also what we've seen at the most recent raft of talks amongst uh, UEFA clubs, which would see legacy ads and, and the like to continue to move towards this American sports model. I don't think it's undeniable to say that the Premier League has been a home to American ownership for a long time. You look at the Cronkies, you look at the Glazers, they're just the beginning of, of this ownership model. And I think that it's moving the sport in, in the wrong direction and fans have to call out when they see bad actors. And I don't think it's unfair to say that at least Joe Ricketts, because I don't think we can say much about anyone other than Todd, um, because Todd has lived his life in the public eye. He's the current governor of Nebraska, Republican. And um, I'm not going to fully divulge my, my politics on here, but uh, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's unfair to say that the Republican Party has moved in a direction that is dangerous, um, and especially their embracement of anti-trans, anti-gay, uh, anti-LGBTQ+. Uh, legislation that has been a, a hallmark of their policies really in the past. You know, you can go back as far as you want, but let's let's keep it grounded to the last six years. That saying no to people like this is something that I think us as fans really should be calling for. And I can't say anything about the other owners because I don't really know them. They they. They're on the outside of my periphery, but this is something that has blown up in the public eye. And like I said, we'll have Ollie on in a week or so to actually fully delve into this when more becomes clear about this whole topic. But uh, I thought we'd be remiss if we didn't mention it. And 
I think that this just continues to show the links that politics have with sport. And we're going to keep having these important conversations on the show. Yeah. One of the things that I'd like to just add to this is uh, Fenway owning Liverpool. Fenway was a huge part of the Super League and they pushed for it. And that was something that Liverpool fans did not take lightly. They tried to increase ticket prices a couple of years ago and uh, they ultimately bring, ended up bringing that back down as well. Um, and they've responded well to fans. So if we get an owner, uh, if Chelsea get an owner that is like Fenway Sports Group, that has a good business model because at the end of the day, fans do want to see their teams uh, win stuff. And uh, Liverpool have made that work with limited funds and not uh, insane funds like the Saudis and the oligarchs have had. Um, we've done good business and that's how we've built our squad up. Uh, people might say otherwise, but if you look at the finances and the net spend that uh, Jurgen Klopp has had over the past six years, uh, you'll it'll, it'll be apparent. So if we have owners that uh, are like that, uh, and as much as I, I want to say people might not give them credit, um, but Fenway Sports Group as an American owner in the Premier League deserve credit for at least listening to fans. And I might have to bite my words if next year they come back and endorse the Super League again. But aside from the Super League controversy and then uh, them trying to increase the ticket fares, they've pretty much listened to fans uh, all throughout the six years, which is good. Yeah, apart from furloughing like half of their employees. But uh, I don't think that that is a stick that we can only beat Liverpool with. I think it's a stick we can beat most of the Premier League with. Exactly. Notably, except Chelsea. Um, And I think that that speaks to the complicated legacy that Roman Abramovich will have. Um, Really, this is a a sticky situation, uh, is I think the best way to put it. It's complicated as to what comes next. It's complicated as to how we move the sport in a direction away from people who want to extract money, people who want to extract their own political goals out of the sport. Um, But these are very important conversations to have. Um, For anyone wanting to read a little bit more about this rise of current owners, I just read this fantastic book by... My one of my journalism idols in uh, James Montague. The book is called The Billionaires Club, and it talks about the rise of the super rich in sport. It's a little bit of an older publish, but uh, it it's very prescient in uh, in these current times. So I encourage all of you who haven't read it to go find it at a library or purchase it. I'm sure James would love the the money. He's excellent. And check out his full raft of books. He is an excellent, excellent reporter that uh, I I only have good things to, to say about. But let's draw this first half of the show to a close. The referee is blowing the whistle on extra time. And let's go into a word from our sponsors. Do you want to learn English? Do you want to play games based on the analysis you read on the Mastermind site? Then go check out Footy Lingo. Whether you're new to football or have been following it for some time, learning about the beautiful game can be hard and confusing sometimes. But Footy Lingo is here to help. It's an online language learning system for football lovers. You'll play games, read articles, and learn more about football all at once as you improve your English reading, writing, and speaking skills. All you have to do is go to the Footy Lingo link in the description and use code MASTERMINDSITE at checkout for 20% off any subscription plan. That's MASTERMINDSITE for 20% off your first order on any subscription plan on Footy Lingo. And now, let's get back to the show. Thank you, Footy Lingo, for your continued support of the Long Ball Premier League preview show. We're moving into trivia now. 
And this a modified game. So we're going to play chess clock. And in honor of my Canadian men's national team, we have 60 seconds up on the clock. Costi, how many of the teams that made the 1986 World Cup in Mexico can you name in three, two, one, go? This is going to be a wild guess. Germany, uh, West, Germ- Wait, West Germany, East Germany, um, United States, England, Soviet Union, uh, Nicaragua, Australia, New Zealand. I'm just naming random teams. I, I <laughs> have no idea. So far, <laughs> you have three. This. So far, you have um, three. 40 seconds on the clock. 40 seconds on the clock. Okay, let me let me think more. Why can't I think? Uh, Mexico, Uruguay, uh, Colombia, Honduras, uh, Costa Rica, uh, Panama, Cuba, um, Jamaica, uh, Turks and Caicos. Country that never made the World Cup. <laughs> 20 seconds. Going through. Uh, what else is the country? India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, uh, China, Japan. It's just I'm just going through the world map in my head. Uh, Nepal, Bhutan, um, Nepal and Indonesia. Bhutan, also countries who haven't made the World Cup, Singapore. and that's it. <laughs> that was terrible, Costi. <laughs> I yeah, I have no idea. I, no I think idea. we've somehow found someone worse at trivia than I am. <laughs> Uh, I'll read you the full list. You're not going to be happy with how you did. You got five countries. Not bad. I wasn't I mean, expecting that. Yeah, that's, I'll, I'll read the full list. Okay. So you got West Germany, the Soviet yeah. Union, nice. England, Uruguay, and Mexico. Okay, not bad. Good. Here are the countries you missed. Iraq. Not bad. Iraq. That's South cool. Korea. Not bad. Oh, very cool. Algeria, Morocco, Canada, the team I started the section with. I thought you said besides Canada. No, I said including Canada. Oh, okay, that's see, that's just Argentina, Brazil. Argentina. How did I miss? Yeah, that, those are bad misses. Paraguay. Huh. And then you only said three European teams and yeah, I don't not. Know Belgium, Bulgaria, Denmark, France, Hungary, Italy, North Ireland, Poland, Portugal, Scotland, and Spain. Yeah, you know, like midway through, I just started going through the world map in my head and I went to like South Central America, North America, went to like a little bit of Asia, um, didn't get to Africa and Europe, to be honest, in my head. Just didn't get there. No, you did not. And no African, uh, I'm sorry, apart from Algeria and Morocco, no other African team made the World Cup. 14 teams from UEFA made up the 24 teams that made the 1986 World Cup. It's a random tidbit, but Senegal or Sadio Mane have uh, kind of <laughs> beaten Mo Salah twice in a row. That is going to be an interesting dynamic at Liverpool now. Salah never passed. I don't think he's passing more after and, all this uh, shenanigan. And no Salah at the World Cup. Salah talking about maybe retiring from international football as well. Mm -hmm. Also, before we move on back into the show this week, Iraq have the possibility to make the World Cup for the first time since 1986. Wow, that is really cool. So we'd love to see a reunion between Canada and Iraq. But let's get back into it. And we're going to talk about two matches this week. My ever faithful West Ham United against Everton. And a little bit later, Leicester and Manchester United. But let's start with West Ham Everton. And I think that there's only one topic that we should start with. 
And that is Everton staring down the barrel of relegation. They're in a right mess. Financial reports came out today and they made note that they lost 120 million pounds this year, which is an insane number and not going to help with their current financial situation. What would make it worse is is if they went down. That is undoubtable. They're three points above the drop zone and they have a hectic end to the season. They have nine matches still to play. So you mentioned those three games in hand. Well, they have to play United, Leicester, Liverpool, and Chelsea. Those are the games that they still have to play. They also have to play Arsenal. In their last nine games, they only play two games against teams that are in the bottom half of the table. That being Burnley next week. Sorry, sorry, Burnley on Wednesday. And Brentford, a team who are above them. So they only have one game to play against a relegation candidate. I think that that puts them in pretty murky waters. If I'm Everton, I'm I'm really worried. They're un they're unbroken Premier League or unbroken top flight stretch is in dire straits right now. And to make matters worse, they've recently lost the services of Andros Townsend for the rest of the season with an ACL injury. That seems Costi, like a bad injury. Yeah, Costi, I'll ask you a very simple question: Is Frank Lampard the man for this job? You read my mind, man. I was sitting on the couch today. Uh, I asked you, what are we talking about? And you said all these things. And I was like, going through them in my head, what am I going to say? And Everton, I was like, Frank Lampard, why did they appoint him? That's the most interesting choice of manager at this stage of the season when you need somebody. You don't need somebody who necessarily can impose their style I don't even know what Frank Lampard's necessary style of play is right now, but you don't need that manager. You need somebody that has been in this battle. That's why my thoughts on Jesse Marsh's appointment seemed more long-term than short-term, which is decent for a relegation bat- battling team, but I don't agree with it. I think you need that nitty-gritty Steve Bruce type of manager that has done it before and kept teams afloat in the Premier League. Frank Lampard coming in, I think, He's done a couple things decently well in that I think the fans are a little bit more behind the team now from what it seems like in the stadium. Uh, You can hear more cheers than boos, which is nice. You do have a Premier League statute there. Um, You have a Premier League great. So maybe that's what they're getting behind. Um, He's improved the attacking prowess by maybe giving them more license to go out and attack. So I think to your question, I don't have a firm answer, but he wouldn't have been my first choice as Everton manager coming into this time of the season unless they had a talk with Frank saying, bring them back up if they go down. At that point, I can maybe understand it, uh, but I think you got to look very, very short term and uh, try and stay afloat and get that $100 million you get for being in the Premier League. <sighs> Don't know. I I think that it's I think that it was undoubtedly the wrong decision um, by Everton. I think that they saw a name in Frank Lampard and thought that you know maybe he can resurrect his Chelsea days, but it's just not worked for him. And I I'm starting to question if Frank Lampard is making the best decisions for himself because if you're approached with the Everton job, 
why would you accept that is my is my is my general thought and an article that was published just mere hours ago we're recording this on thursday um as well just so we don't just so we can give a a date to this podcast is that everton have been worse since frank lampard took over that is the headline and i don't think it's wrong they have been abysmal since Frank Lampard took over. And I don't think they've actually been better than, than when Rafa left. And they have nine six-pointers left. They have nine six-pointers left. And they can't seem to figure it out. Only five sides have less touches than Frank Lampard over a 90-minute span. And one of them is Wolves, who can actually defend. And that has always been the problem with this Everton squad. It's that they can't defend. They are physically incapable of defending. And I, I don't get why you bring Frank Lampard in to sort that out. They did win their most recent match, but before that, they lost four. It's not, it's not good times at... It's not good times at Goodison Park, and they have been pumped. They lost 5 nothing to Spurs. This is just, it's a bad situation that I don't think Frank Lampard has the, has the quality to fix. I don't know if he's a Premier League manager yet. And you have to think that taking the Everton job has made his position worse. I just, I don't know if he has the quality within him to squeeze the last little bit. He's not a tactically complex manager, but he also is a manager who doesn't say the right things. I can't remember which game it was after, but he was asked a very simple question. And his response was simply that the players didn't try hard enough. And if, you know, you have gone on this long run or it's the beginning of the season, that's what that might be what you want to say. But at this time of year, you really want to build that siege mentality. And he hasn't done that. He's failed to do that. And I think that Frank Lampard's stock is a, manager is on its way down and keep in mind they just got pumped four to nothing in the fa cup quarterfinal by crystal palace for nothing in a game that they started a relatively full strength squad full strength they started full full strength i think frank lampard in itself needs to prove himself because even when he got moved from derby to chelsea he didn't do too much. They finished sixth in uh, in the league that, and then lost out in the playoffs. Um, but then he was made Chelsea manager because he was a Chelsea legend, and then it didn't work out for him. And since then, it's been here and there with him and his comments and his his uh, interviews. But then he gets this job, and it just seems very random. Um, and it seems like he's just so desperate to be managing a Premier League side that he would he would take a project like Everton where. It's an interesting bid because if he keeps them afloat, sure people will say that he kept them afloat. But uh, if he doesn't, it just it, the upside is compared to the downside. It just doesn't make sense for him as a manager, and I don't think he has the the qualities of a manager that's going to keep a Premier League side up. You need too much grit, and even in his team, he's not blessed with the best uh, defenders in Ben Godfrey, Michael Keane, and Jordan Pickford. It's just I see these three players and they're just so error prone. It's, it's kind of frustrating to watch specifically Michael Keane play, because I think you could see the sincerity in his, in his face when he's defending, but 
it's kind of like Tyrone Mings. You're, you're going to get a full-hearted performance, but they might give penalties away or score an own goal or some, something that just doesn't bode well with uh, the team in that situation. And that's the same with Jordan Pickford. He's just an overhyped uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex, and it's just sad. Um, I think, though, that it's interesting that you bring up um, Tyrone Mings and Aston Villa, because that brings us onto a conversation about Steven Gerrard, who's, I think that they are inextricably linked people. You, they've always been a foil to each other. And if you look at what Stevie G has done, I don't think it's because he's necessarily a much better manager than Frank Lampard. I think he is, but I don't think that his decisions point to being a better manager. I think his decisions are more realistic to where he is. So he goes and he takes a job at Rangers who are, you know, a big team, but in a off Broadway league, if you will, it's like when Hamilton comes to Toronto, right? It's not the same cast. It's not the same pressure, but it's still the big time, right? Like Toronto is still a massive city, but he goes and he performs. He wins a, a title with, with Rangers after 10 years of dominance by Celtic. He goes and he performs mightily in, in the Europa League, and then he earns an upgrade. And other teams were sniffing around at him. You know, I think that he could have gone to a bigger team than Aston Villa, but he's realistic, and he sees what he can achieve in an environment that is more high pressure, but not United. That's not Chelsea. That's not, I don't know, take your pick. I don't think he could have gone back to Liverpool, but I think eventually he will be. But he'll be ready for that because he's put, he, he seems to have this foresight of exactly where he's at in his career. And I think that that is the most important thing for a manager. And you look at Frank Lampard, and he was doing well with Darby. Like, you know, they. they was Darby they, his first uh, managerial? His first managerial. His first yeah, man- And the championship the is a top between... league. It's a tough yeah. league. It's one of the hardest leagues in the world. You play so much football, everything is all over the place. And that's the difference between uh, Foresight and Jared and Lampard because Jared did behind closed doors under 18's management with Liverpool first. And that was something that Jurgen Klopp told him to do. And he credits Jurgen Klopp for his managerial successes whenever he gets a chance because uh, Klopp basically said, hey, go do, go figure out not just how you want to play, but the biggest thing, your team, because you won't be able to know everything. You, you can't. You don't have that much uh, time on your hands to know every little part of the game and how your team plays. Go figure that out in two years with the under 18s, who your who your backroom staff needs to be. Then move on, and that's a very important lesson that he learned. And he's gone from strength to strength since then. Under 18s, Rangers, Aston Villa, which is very important. And you're definitely right on the money there. Yeah, and you look at Frank Lampard, and then he takes this huge step from Derby to Chelsea because the opportunity presented itself. And I think a lot of people criticized him at the moment or in the moment. And I think that a lot of what he did was fan service, if, if you will. I, like, did he make Chelsea better? No. Did he lay the groundwork for that Champions League victory? Yes. But I don't think he was ever capable of bringing them to that Champions League victory. You know, he gave opportunities to youngsters. And that's something that he was praised for, especially coming to Everton that, you know, we'd see more of Anthony Gordon, that we'd see more of Nathan Patterson, who they, who they just signed from, I believe Rangers, but it, it, it hasn't worked out. And 
Everton are in this place where they don't need youngsters. They need experienced players who have been there before. And yes, Frank Lampard has struggled with injuries. They don't have Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Deli Ali hasn't been a perfect fit. Deli Ali, that buy is just insane. Anyway. But it, 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 it hasn't worked at Everton. And I don't know what would have fixed it. And I say all of this. And in an, in, a, in an interview with The Athletic, David Moyes was, before he rejoined West Ham two years ago, was presented with the opportunity to return to Everton. He said no and chose to go to West Ham instead. And look how that's worked out. Um, we'll, we'll get on to West Ham in just a moment here, but you need some foresight as a manager. And that's something that David Moyes has also struggled with. And you saw- You can't be way, desperate as a manager. That's and you the saw the way thing. his career has been, has been banded about. He was excellent at Everton. And took the step up to United, and everyone was going to fail in that situation. Everyone yeah. was going to fail in you that situation. You couldn't have put anyone else in there. That and they've succeeded. continued to fail in that situation post post Alex. And then he goes to to Spain, and it, it, it's a, it's a whole thing. But David Moyes is back, and you hope that Frank Lampard's career won't take that path. But I think that it's made David Moyes a better manager, and I don't think that we should discount the future of Frank Lampard just because of some early career mistakes, but he's yet to prove that he has the quality. And I, I really do think that Everton are, are destined for the relegation zone. Like their run in at the end of the season is, is tough. Realistically, how many points do they get from their last nine? They play West Ham on Sunday, Burnley United, Leicester, Liverpool, Chelsea, Leicester, Brent, Brentford, and Arsenal. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a tough run-in for them. I wouldn't like to see them relegated because I think they have been in the Premier League so long and they have a big support in the city of Liverpool as well. So I would like to see them continue on as a Premier League team. But if I were to bet, I would bet that they go down. And how many points do they get from that run? I think they, games? with nine games left, I think they get 15 points. 15 points? 15 points from nine Sorry. games, and they go down. Sorry, I mean uh, nine points. I did the math, uh, math wrong. Okay, I, I still think with nine points, they end up coming through. You think? But I, I assume that games. you're predicting them to beat Burnley and Brentford, which I don't agree with. Yeah. I, think they, I think they get four points, and it's a win against Brentford on the second last day. Okay. okay. Who else do you see them getting points from? I think the toss-ups for me are obviously Burnley. I think I never know what to expect out of Leicester this season, so I don't know. That's a toss-up again for me. Um, the Watford game is postponed, right? Uh, yeah. So that'll be a game that they can get some points out of. And the last team that I will say that they might is, is Brentford. Um, they might get something out of that game as well. So there are like four games I say they have an outside chance of getting points off of. So I, I, that's why I think I thought in my mind nine uh, is a good point. But I think with nine, the, they, they might not make it because I think Burnley also have nine points. And for some reason, I just the name Burnley to me stands out in terms of a relegation battle winner compared Four to Everton. And separate Burnley and Everton from the drop zone. Burnley with the much easier run-in 
at the end of the season, they play Manchester yeah. United, Manchester City this weekend, Everton on Wednesday, but dates against fellow relegation candidates in Norwich City, Newcastle, and Watford welcome them. They only play three teams in the top half of the table to close out the year to Burnley. So it will be interesting, but let's talk about another Claret team and let's talk about a team at the other end of the table, West Ham United. Now there's a lot to talk about with West Ham, but we'll keep it brief. I think that West Ham have fallen out of contention of finishing fourth in the Premier League. They are eight points, six points, sorry, behind Arsenal. And Arsenal are on a roll. West Ham are on a little bit of a... Two games in hand as well. Two games and... You know, those games in hand are something that I, I, I think is an interesting conversation all in itself. But I think that West Ham have unfortunately found out that it's just that little bit too far. I think that they can requalify for the Europa League if they climb up a spot and pass United, who have a game in hand and are only two points ahead of them. But United also on a little bit of a wobble. But my question is for you, when do West Ham start to prioritize this Europa League. They play Lyon on Thursday, and then they have the return date on the 14th. They, they are hosting Lyon in the quarterfinals of the Europa League. It's a game that I am mighty excited for. So, in the middle of those Lyon games, they, pay, they play Everton and Brentford, which are relatively easier teams. And then so, Burnley the, the weekend the after week as after. well. So it's like five games where the only true concern for them should be Leon, and they should be able to beat all three uh, in the Premier League. So prioritizing for me right now wouldn't make sense if if I'm being honest. After that, though, they play Chelsea, Arsenal, and those and City in the in the latter half of that season, and that's when I think the conversation around prioritizing becomes more relevant because. They have tough games in the Premier League. Who do they rest? What kind of tactical uh, understandings do they develop within the team? And do they really just go for semis and then a final in the Europa League compared to uh, the Premier League? Or, yeah, that's, I think for now they can just sort of not breeze the Premier League, but they can be relatively less uncomfortable. I would be very surprised if we see Mikel Antonio against Brentford. Antonio did not travel with the Jamaica squad. He uh, remained in London. There are some concerns over, over his hamstrings as well in, uh, in, in the weekend prior. Um, Jared Bowen also still a doubt. And Angelo Agbana, who is done for the season, uh, is back training again. Kurt, Kurt Zuma and Craig Dawson also injury doubts, but uh, you know, this West Ham squad has a lot to cheer for. And I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see some of those youngsters, you know, I'd love to see Sonny Perkins play against Brentford, maybe even against Everton. Um, Also, we have to talk about Andre Yarmolenko, that story that is Andre Yarmolenko, who has been an inspired form three goals in his last three games for West Ham. Um, and a part of all of this as, as well. And Yarmolenko's contract is coming up at the end of the season. He's a high earner. I don't expect him to be renewed. But looking back at some of the moments he's had for this club have been sensational. You look back at the year that we, or 2018-19, the year we almost got relegated. And if he doesn't score that beautiful goal against Chelsea, we are relegated. 
because we stay up against Aston Villa on the last day by the skin of our teeth, right? It, his story is sensational. And then you add to it all of the geopolitical drama going on in Ukraine. He's obviously Ukrainian. He flew to Poland to save his family, um, took some time off from West Ham. And he's been on flying form. And some of the pictures that have come out have just been heart-wrenching um, of the stuff that you see and how much it means to him to be playing and playing at a high level. So I will never wish ill on Andre Yarmolenko. And you know, I hope that West Ham give him the opportunity to start against Everton. Rest Antonio for midweek. Give him that time off because he needs it. And with all due respect to Everton, I think that you know West Ham is a team that should tear them apart. I don't think this game should be close and I'm predicting a two or three, nothing win for West Ham, but because I'm predicting that means that West Ham are going to lose this one, two to one. Uh, Costi, can I push you for a prediction? Um, I'll, I'll go with you a two nil victory for West Ham over a struggling Everton. They would need like an inspired performance and no mistakes at the back to potentially secure some points against West Ham. And I just don't see that happening. Um, I think Everton have other fish to fry in this season and, and West Ham's just not one of them. And let's move on a little bit further north. We'll talk about Manchester United and Leicester City. Leicester City, a team who are also in the quarterfinals of a European date. They will face off against PSV in the Euro- in the Europa Conference League on a Thursday, but ahead of them, a much more difficult task in United. Leicester has just been a sad story this season, hasn't it? It's just they were on the up, on the up, on the up. And uh, on Football Masterminds, I think for two seasons straight, I was roasting <laughs> uh, Reese because he somehow always believed in West uh, in Leicester finishing fourth and they didn't. And then this season has just been uh, nothing's worked. They've tried three at the back, two at the back, four at the back, five at the back. And it's all been sort of uh, a nightmare. Um, but then again, it's United. United are a team where, sort of like Leicester, you don't know where you're going to get on the day. Uh, you might get an inspired performance from Ronaldo, and then they win, uh, what was it, 3-0, um, where Ronaldo scored a hat-trick, I believe. And if you don't get that, then there's not a lot of goal scorers left because Greenwood, uh, you know, the Greenwood story has happened, but Greenwood did a terrible thing, and rightly so. He's under investigation. A, a finisher that United could have used. Um, Rashford's out of form. Jesse Lingard cannot win any manager over at United for some goddamn reason that I will not understand because he was amazing at West Ham. Um, and yeah, it's just it's just one of those teams in United where they need a lot of restructuring. They need almost an Arsenal type of season where they struggle, they are bad, and then they remove players that just don't fit with a philosophy. First off, let's get a philosophy in in the door and then they'll be good. So this game, honestly, a toss-up for me. If Leicester show up that day, they could beat United. If Ronaldo shows up, United should have a breeze. Yeah, I think I think that you bring up all good points. And I just want to focus on Leicester before we return back to Manchester United. But Leicester team who are on the up uh, a bit. I, I have a fun story to share about uh, PSV in just a moment from their uh, Europa Conference League uh, previous round. But 
you know, we saw the return of Wesley Fofana, who's been out since the beginning of the season with a broken leg. He has shored up their defense. They've struggled in defense and having to move players around the shop who don't really fit. But currently, Leicester sitting 10th in the table. James Madison also starting to find some form. And, you know, United are always that team you don't know what to predict from them. They can lose to Watford or they can go out and they can smash City. Like, it's this team where you don't have any clue which one is going to show up. And I think that that makes this game a must watch. I think that that is why we have put it in the place of game of the week. It is going to be a cracker. And if you have time at 1230 on Saturday, right in the middle of the day here in the great country of Canada, give it a watch it. You won't regret it. Both teams not really on stable footing. And, you know, Brendan Rogers looking to prove something because his job has been called into question. I think it would be a mistake if they fire him. Yeah, but Lester seemed to be going and I'd love to continue to watch the Pats and DACA show. But that story that I alluded to against PSV. So PSV, a team from the Netherlands, obviously traveled to Copenhagen to play FC Copenhagen in the previous round of the Europa Conference League game. PSV parked their bus at a different, dropped their team off, parked their bus at a different hotel. And at three o'clock in the morning, the Copenhagen fans come with fireworks and drums and all the like to try and wake up the PSV fans or the PSV players who were sound asleep in another hotel. <laughs> That's a good tactic. I think that tactic should be uh, a worldwide tactic where you have uh, decoys like the, uh, the presidents and the prime ministers have, and you don't know which team bus the team's really on when you play away games. And that's, that's an interesting concept. And Mario Goza, who uh, was asked before the game, who's now on PSV, uh, how he slept the night before, he said, I slept like a baby. Obviously, but we're not at the hotel where our bus was at. <laughs> and imagine just being the, so- the sore sob who was staying at that hotel, trying to mind his own business. And just the bus rolls up and he's like, oh, the footballers are here. And then you find out that the footballers aren't there and then you don't get to sleep either. So just just a great story, something that you'd hear out of out of South America. But uh, we were graced in the continent of Europe. But before we wrap up, Costi, just some final thoughts on United. You know, this is a team that's all over the place. Do you think that they can hold on to that sixth spot or will West Ham or Wolves climb up and pass them? Obviously, 20, 29 games played for United. Um, 30 games played for West Ham, but United, a tough run in. They got to play Arsenal and Liverpool, Chelsea again. There's some games that they can win in there, but uh, some banana skins, if you will. I think it's going to be West Ham, if anything, uh, for as a team to come up and take United's spot. And that's a very, I think that's a very logical thing that could happen. I think uh, West Ham has it in them to do it. And uh, United, just don't have finishers. They've tried a front with Cavani and Ronaldo, the old guard together. They've tried just Ronaldo. They've tried benching Ronaldo. They've, they've tried everything to consistently score goals. And it doesn't come at a right time that Bruno has sort of lost his form in a United shirt when it comes to goal scoring and chance creation. So it's going to be a tough run in for a manager that apparently taught uh, Klopp and is the father of Gagan pressing. Uh, either he doesn't have the players or he, like Bielsa, wasn't meant for the big leagues. Uh, I'm going to put it on number one. I'm a big believer in Ralph Ragnick. Um, but that'll do it for the show. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any ideas or for games or topics you want us to talk about the show, send it 
to us on Twitter or email us at site at gmail.com. Before I wrap things up, Costi, is there anything that you want to plug? Uh, not yet. Uh, I think uh, we're going to do like a football mastermind sort of uh, show on why we have been inactive for the past four or five months. Um, that's what we're going to do. But uh, Declan and I were talking about doing a special segment on analytics, maybe on this show. It's definitely a maybe, but uh, if you guys like analytics, we'll talk about it further. And, you know, maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. Keep an eye out for it. And if you have uh, any topics or ideas you want us to talk about in the world of football analytics, make sure you send us uh, a tweet or an email. Uh, that's something that, uh, you know, we're letting out of the bag a little bit, but uh, might be might be something you start to see on the feed in just a little bit. Uh, just personally, please check out uh, my Twitter at debarp14. I just uh, sent out uh, a tweet about a project that I've been working on for quite a long time that I think that you'll really enjoy. It's a deep dive into the politicization of the Italian curvas um, in from the sixties to the modern day, uh, a project I'm really excited about. So if you want, please go give it a read. It would uh, mean the world to me. Uh, But that'll do it for the show this week. We'll be back next week with a whole raft of games to talk about, possibly Everton going down, possibly Jesse March transforming into Ted Lasso. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a five-star rating as it really helps new listeners find the show. And if you liked us so much, tell a friend about us. Thank you for listening and have a good week, folks.